Isaiah 56, but we're not going to start there. In fact, you might want to do a little bit like this, a little bit like this, a little bit like that. We're going to be doing some page turning tonight. Because we're only going to take the first eight verses of Isaiah 56. The remainder of the chapter really belongs with, uh, with chapter 57, which gives us some time. It frees up some time to consider the context of these eight chapters. So we're going to wander a little bit. Okay, wander's the wrong word. Wander makes it sound like we're just going to aimlessly go, go back and forth and bounce around. We're not. We're going to we're going to bounce around, but we're going to do it with, with intent. We're going to do it to compare Scripture with Scripture. We're going to do it to do what we do on Wednesday nights. Brother in the fellowship years ago, he's with the Lord now, but years ago we would get breakfast every few weeks. And usually when he called me up and said, let's get breakfast, I'd know that I'd tweaked him or that he'd gotten tweaked by something that was said in a message. And, and, and sure enough, we'd sit down and we'd order our eggs and he'd start in, he'd start railing on what he saw as my unconditional and unwarranted support of Israel. And, and, and sometimes it would be something that I'd said, sometimes it would be something in the news. If Israel was bulldozing Palestinian settlements on the West Bank, or if Israeli soldiers had shot into a crowd of protesters, or if there had been retaliation for, for attacks from, from Gaza or from Lebanon that he thought was, was disproportionate. He'd pound on the table, how can you support these thugs and these murderers? And my consistent answer, my consistent answer then and my consistent answer now and my consistent answer tomorrow, I hope, is I don't. I do not unconditionally support the present government of Israel. I support Israel, the nation. I support Israel's right to exist as a nation. Israel was regathered in the land and reestablished as a political entity as a miraculous fulfillment of prophecy. This is, this is thus saith the Lord stuff. So yeah, I'm in favor of stuff that God's in favor of. I'm all about thus saith the Lord kinds of things. And, and, and that sounds obvious and that sounds unobjectionable. But most of Israel's neighbors very much object to the existence of Israel. If you look back at the wars that Israel has fought since being reestablished in the land in the 1940s. The, the war that broke out immediately when Israel declared her statehood. And the wars that have followed in 67 and so forth. If you look at the rhetoric of Israel's enemies at the time, sometimes, sometimes it's tempered and it's toned down after the fact. But if you look at what Israel's enemies said at the time, the wars were not about the size of Israel. They weren't about the boundaries of Israel. They were about the existence of Israel. And that's something that I think not only do we get to be black and white about, we need to be black and white about. 
Israel being regathered in the land is nothing less than God's miraculous fulfillment of prophecy. We get to be entirely, unambiguously in favor of that. But what the nation does, what the government decides, the actions that they take, there's good and there's bad. And we can debate what's good and what's bad. We can debate where the line is. But there's no question that the the present government of Israel today does some stuff that I think pleases the Lord and does some stuff that I suspect grieves the Lord. Israel's present government is capable of both good and not good, just like every other nation on earth, including ours. Because the government is made up of people with a sin nature, Israel, yes, God's people, God's chosen people, people with a destiny. But the nation Israel today, by and large, does not worship the God of Israel. Israel's Israel's people today, by and large, are not following the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so today, Israel is no more one nation under God than the United States is. Probably less so. But say that too loudly. Say too loudly that Israel has a right to exist. Say too often that God's not done with Israel, that God loves Israel, that the reestablishment of Israel is proof that God has a plan underway in progress for Israel. Some people get nervous. And some people leap to the conclusion, oh, so what you're saying is that Israel can't do anything wrong. No, that's not what I'm saying. But that's what some people hear. And when you say, hey, when Jesus returns, he's going to rule and reign in Israel. He's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. Israel is going to be the political capital of the world. And all of the world, all of the nation, Jew and Gentile, are going to flock to Israel to worship the king, like we just sang about. Some people lose their minds. Because it sounds to them like a blank check. So what you're saying is that everything Israel does is good and nothing that Israel does can possibly be bad. No, those aren't the same thing. My friend, and some of you probably know who I'm talking about. He's with the Lord now. He, 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 he didn't go that far. But like a lot of people, he would get stuck at what he sees in the present tense coming out of Israel, happening in Israel and, and, and reconciling with what Israel did 2,000 years ago, how can God have a plan for them? How can they still be God's people? How can God still love them? How can God ever forgive them? But, when, but, but, but when, that, when that conversation didn't go anywhere, he'd take it from the other end. He'd say, well, what about the Gentiles? And I, and I say he would. A lot of people do. It's a common line of argumentation. If, if you don't like where we are in the present, well, let's, let's figure out that the eschatology is wrong and work backwards. So what about the Gentiles in this premillennial eschatology that you have, where God turns his favor, his, his, his love back upon the Jews, his mercy? What happens to the Gentiles? Do we just go back to being fuel for the furnaces of hell? Because if the eschatology is wrong, then everything else, everything else we think is wrong. And that would be the point where I would try to answer, and that would be the point where he'd say, our eggs are getting cold. We'll talk about other things. 
because he'd vented everything and he'd gotten it off his chest and he'd already checked out before we even sat down, really. Because he, he, he had grown up in a church, he had spent a lot of time in a church that believed and taught that God could not forgive Israel for handing her Messiah over to be crucified. And so anything after that was just variations on a theme. It was just different colors of impossible. We've addressed that question, I think, pretty adequately these past several Wednesdays, these past several Sundays. God's not done with Israel. Anyone who's been with us the past several weeks, I hope that you don't have any remaining doubt about that. If you do, please, let's talk. We'll go get eggs. <laughs> but out of all of that is a reasonable question. What about the Gentiles? It's a fair question because it's understandable how someone might have sat in the last several weeks in this church Someone who, who, who showed up a couple months ago, and, and, and so all they've heard is Romans 9 and Romans 10 and Isaiah, Isaiah, Isaiah. God's not done, he's not done, he's not done. Israel, Israel, Israel. And, and, and wonder, okay, what about the Gentiles? Because we've been talking so much about the future of Israel. God's not done with Israel. Okay, I get that. You've said that like 40, 11 times. But is there a point where he's done with us? The short answer is no, the Gentiles are clearly present in the millennial kingdom. Jesus returns. He sets up his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. We've talked about that. And the Gentiles are present there. That's the short answer. But tonight we get to delve into the longer answer. I, I told you to go to Isaiah 56. That's awesome. Keep a thumb there and turn to Joel chapter 3. If you're in Isaiah, go to the right. You go Jeremiah, you go Ezekiel, you go Daniel, and then the books get small, and they go by fast. So go to Ezekiel and slow down, and you get to Joel chapter 3. One of the minor prophets. Not minor because it's less important, minor because it's shorter. Because Joel's really important. There's cool stuff in Joel. We're going to go to chapter 3, and we're just going to look at three verses. Behold, in those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I'll also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I'll enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they've scattered among the nations. They've also divided up my land. They've cast lots for my people. They've given a boy as payment for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Okay, let's decipher this together. Behold, in those days. In those days is one of those phrases that cues us in, clues us in. We're talking about the end times. In those days, in that day, in the great day of the Lord. In the time that begins with the tribulation and continues through the uh, uh, millennial kingdom. In those days, what's going to happen? When I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem. Well, hang on. Are you sure that doesn't mean the return from the Babylonian exile? No, because verse 2, the Lord says, I'll also gather all nations, and that hasn't happened yet. And where does he gather them? Down in the valley of Jehoshaphat. Another name for the valley of Jehoshaphat? 
to the Valley of Armageddon, where the, where the climactic battle of uh, the end of the tribulation had just been fought. What happens? God says, I'm going to enter into judgment there. We're going to have a trial there. Who's he going to judge? He's going to judge the nations. Nations is another word for Gentiles. He's not saying I'm going to judge these diverse political entities. He's saying I'm going to judge the Gentile people. For what? For how they treated Israel during the tribulation. During the seven years that begins with a treaty between Antichrist and her enemies, brokered by, I'm sorry, a treaty between Israel and her enemies, brokered by Antichrist, and, and, and concludes with the second coming. What are the charges? They've scattered among, they've scattered my people among the nations, they've divided up my land, they've cast lots for my people, they've given a boy as payment for a harlot. So they've scattered the people, divided the land, and they've sold Jews into slavery. Are you sure that isn't what happens at the end of the Babylonian exile? No, they're freed at the end of the Babylonian exile. But in Zechariah, you can turn there or just listen. Zechariah chapter 14, which is a clearly prophetic chapter. The day of the Lord is coming. Okay, so that cues us in. We're talking about that same future period of the time. And your spoil will be divided in your midst. I'll gather the nations to battle against Jerusalem. So that's before Jesus has returned. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity. So there we go. This is, this is clearly, back to Joel, talking about a judgment against the Gentiles for how they treated the Jews, Israel, during the tribulation. Patrick, you're really building all of that based on just three verses in Joel. I'm not. Go to Matthew 25. Told you to warm up your fingers. It's going to be one of those nights. And some of this is review for some of you. But I wanted to grab the opportunity to pull a few different threads together. Matthew 25. The words of Jesus... Beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory. So this is Jesus talking about the second coming. Jesus talking about the same period of time. At the end of the tribulation, Israel repents. Jesus returns, destroys the armies of Antichrist. Antichrist is cast into hell along with the false prophet. What happens next? When he comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he'll sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him in the valley of Armageddon, because that's where the climactic battle takes place. And he'll separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He'll set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food, thirsty and you gave me drink, a stranger you took me, and naked you clothed me, sick you visited me, I was in prison, you came to me. All right, let's pause here. This is Jesus talking about the same event that Joel was talking to us about, except that Joel did it like 800 years before Jesus talked about it. It's a judgment 
Jesus says, of sheep and goats. What's the differentiation? What's the delineation between the sheep and the goats? The sheep are pro-Israel. Jesus says, uh, the righteous will answer in verse 37, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger take you in naked and clothe you, see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Who are Jesus' brethren? The Jews. Be careful, not the church. We're his bride. The Jews are his brethren in this context. So he's saying, hey, those who were kind to Israel, those who were generous to the Jewish people, at risk of their own lives, by the way. When, when, when the Jews were being persecuted, we just read in Zechariah, when they were being enslaved, when they were, when they were being slaughtered, those who were openly sympathetic to the Jewish people are the sheep in this judgment. Again, this is personal. This is individual. Don't let that word nations confuse you. Jesus isn't going to stand in the valley of Armageddon and say, okay, Ecuador over there, Canada, go with them, U.S. over here, Mexico, yeah, you can go too. No, this is going to be personal and individual. Based on what? Based on kindness to Israel when the world under Antichrist was told under penalty of death, to persecute Israel. And by the way, I don't think that just means humanitarian aid. Keep a finger in Matthew 25, but bounce back to Isaiah and bounce all the way back to Isaiah 13. We're having fun tonight. I like these nights. Isaiah 13, and I honestly, I can't remember, and I ran out of time to look up if we talked about this when we were here, but verse 2, lift up a banner on the high mountain. What's the high mountain? Jerusalem. Raise your voice to them. Wave your hand that they might enter the gates of the nobles. I've commanded my sanctified ones. I've also called my mighty ones for my anger, those who rejoice in my exaltation, the noise of a multitude in the mountains like that of many people, a tumultuous noise of the kingdom of nations gathered together, nations, Gentiles. The Lord of hosts musters the army for battle. So this is the end times. This is when Jesus returns at the end of the tribulation. This is the second coming when he's on horseback, a sword coming out of his mouth. King of kings, Lord of lords, they come from a far country. That also signifies the land of the Gentiles, the outermost parts. From the end of heaven, the Lord and his weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail for the day of the Lord is at hand. Further confirmation that we're talking about end times. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. All hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt. They'll be afraid and so forth. Verse 9, the day of the Lord comes and so forth. But... Under, under, understand what we just said. It sounds like when Jesus returns to battle Antichrist, that at least some Gentile armies will side with him. So when we read in Matthew 25, you fed me, you clothed me, you visited me in prison, 
humanitarian aid will be part of the opportunity that the tribulation saints have to minister to the Jewish people. But it sounds like Jesus is also going to give credit to those who take up arms against Antichrist in his persecution of the Jewish people. I think that's interesting. But back to Matthew 25. Those who side with Jesus, whether in battle or in sympathy and ministry, enter the kingdom. Matthew 25. You kept a finger there. I didn't. Now I'm back. Verse 41. Then I'll also say to those on the left hand, those were the goats, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't take me. And naked, you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, you didn't visit me. Verse 44, they'll answer and say, when did we do or not do those things? And he'll answer them, verse 45, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. That's sobering, isn't it? Immediate, eternal judgment. But do not trip Be sobered by verse 46. Don't trip over it. Don't stumble over it. Because at first glance, it almost sounds like a different gospel, doesn't it? It almost sounds like a salvation of works. And the critics of our eschatology, the critics of a premillennial eschatology, will point that out and say, that can't be what it means This can't be talking about the Jews because that would be a salvation by works. And we know that's not how we're saved. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Think a little harder, though. Because that's not what verse 46 is saying. It's not saying, love Israel and be saved. Jesus is not saying, if you love Israel, you get a free pass into the kingdom. What he's saying is that the tribulation saints will, by virtue of being saved, love Israel. We are not ever saved by good works, right? We are saved always for good works. And the best work during the tribulation will be loving the Jewish people. The purpose of the tribulation We think about it in in Gentile terms. We think about the tribulation as God's judgment against the nation. But what's his underlying purpose? What's underlying overriding? What's his real intention? The salvation of the Jews. He's chastening them to repentance. And so the greatest act, the highest ministry, the best work, will be that which loves the Jewish people. Which means... If this is judgment of the Gentiles at the end of the tribulation, there's sheep and there's goats, what that means is that some of the tribulation saints are Gentiles. I mention that because literally a week ago, I had someone engage with me on this and and suggest, hey, in the tribulation, only the Jewish people are saved. Again, it's taking this idea, God has a future for Israel, he has a future for Israel, has a future for Israel, and and letting that eclipse anything else going on. Well, I guess if God has a future for Israel, then there's no future for the Gentiles. No. 
There are Gentiles saved during the tribulation. Among the tribulation saints are Gentiles. The counter-argument, the argument, the conversation I was having, the discussion I was having, the counter-argument was, what about the 144,000? The 144,000 sealed by God to be witnesses are, are Jewish. I said, yes, they are, but who are they ministering to? Flip to Revelation 7. Revelation 7, one of the ways that God is evangelizing the Jewish people during the tribulation is through the, these 144,000 witnesses, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. And, and, and beginning in verse 4, I heard the number of those sealed, John says, 144,000, Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, and so forth. Verse 9, after these I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, there's that word again, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our Lord who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Okay, pause there. All nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, which tells us that an awful lot of those people are Gentiles, all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. The Jews are one nation, one people, one tribe, one tongue. So if this is many, it includes Gentiles. Who are these people? We don't have to guess. Verse 13, one of the elders answered, saying to me, saying to John, who are these with the white robes and the songs and things? And I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Those are the tribulation saints, including, clearly, Gentiles. Okay, back to the sheep and goat judgment. After the return of Christ, those who sided with the Antichrist against Israel, who, who weren't saved, enter everlasting punishment. Those who were saved and who therefore said, okay, my ministry is to the Jewish people during this time. What happens to them next? Go back to Isaiah. And go to chapter 11. Where I don't have a bookmark. And you don't either. What do we read in Isaiah about the kingdom? Well, we read in chapter 11, verse 10. In that day there shall be a root of Jesse. Who's that? Jesus. Who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. So the Gentiles, along with the Jews, after the return of Jesus, stand amazed in the presence of Jesus. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus of Galilee. We all do. How can you not? Go to Isaiah 42. Jew and Gentile will stand amazed in the presence of Jesus. Jesus will rule over all of the land from Israel. He'll rule over the world. Behold, Chapter 42 of Isaiah, verse 1. My servant whom I uphold. Now this is recent enough. We know the servant is Jesus. 
Same servant as Isaiah 53, right? My elect one in whom my soul delights, I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Part of Jesus' ministry as king, ruling and reigning in the world physically for a thousand years. Ruling and reigning over the world, administering justice to the world. Because remember, only people who are saved enter the kingdom, but then they have kids. And their kids have a sin nature. So there will be justice to administer. He'll offer, he'll administer justice to the world. He'll offer his salvation to the world in the kingdom. Flip to Isaiah 49. We were just here. Beginning in verse 5, And now the Lord said, Who formed me from the womb to be his servant. So who's talking here? Jesus. Wait, Jesus was formed in the... Oh yeah, the whole incarnation, okay. (laughs) To bring Jacob back to him. Who's Jacob? Israel, part of Jesus' ministry, is to reconcile Israel to himself so that Israel is gathered to him. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my Lord shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it's too small a thing that you shall be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. You will do that, but I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So Jesus' ministry at the return of Israel will also be to the Gentiles. Now, some commentators speculate that those verses and verses like them were were given by God, spoken by God, primarily to exhort the Jews. The Jews having been persecuted again and again and again for centuries and centuries and centuries at the hands of Gentiles. Some read this as an exhortation to the Jews, you need to accept the Gentiles in the kingdom. You need to welcome them as brothers and sisters, even though they were your persecutors. You need to forgive them. You need to welcome them. I actually wonder if it isn't the opposite of that. I actually wonder if this isn't an exhortation to the Gentiles that it's okay to enter the kingdom. Yeah, you persecuted the Jews for centuries and centuries. And you, and you mocked them and you said God was done with them and God could never forgive them. Now having been proven wrong... Having, having, having had that dramatically demonstrated to be an error, is this not an, an exhortation to the Jew so much as it is an encouragement to the Gentile? It's okay to be part of the kingdom. It's okay even to worship at the temple. And this is where we go to chapter 56. You didn't think we were going to get there. Thus says the Lord, Isaiah 56 verse 1, Keep justice, do righteousness. For my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who lays hold of it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. We'll talk more about this another day. But this is an exhortation to the Jew. And it would seem that part of that exhortation, it's an exhortation to righteousness, part of that is Sabbath-keeping. That sounds strange to our ears. Are we sure that this is really a kingdom passage? Are we sure that we haven't suddenly gone back and we're not talking about return from exile? 
Maybe. But I don't think so. Because if you glance forward to chapter 66, the very end of Isaiah, we read in verse 23, it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. It's troubling to you and to me because we've been taught and we understand that we worship Jesus and Jesus fulfilled the law. Now, a lot of the law he reiterated, we're still not supposed to steal or murder, but we're not told to keep the Sabbath. In fact, Colossians 2.17, Paul says, don't worry about feast days and new moons and all of these things. Those were shadows anticipating, pointing to, foreshadowing Jesus. But we've been through enough together, you, you and me. I get nervous when someone says, well, it must be a metaphor, it must be an idiom, it must be allegorical, just because we don't understand it. Because we know that there's a literal temple in the kingdom, and we know that there are literal sacrifices in the kingdom. We know that at least one feast is observed in the kingdom. Zechariah 14, we were there earlier, tells us that the Feast of Tabernacles is going to be observed in the kingdom. That's why Peter got so confused on the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, is it time to build booths? I'll build a booth for, for, for you and for Moses and for Elijah. Because I know if you've been glorified, then we're in the kingdom and we're supposed to do booths in the kingdom. We're supposed to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus says, Peter, calm down. But if there's at least one feast in the kingdom, and if there are sacrifices in the kingdom, might there be Sabbath-keeping in the kingdom? Maybe. There are those who are going to say, that's just an idiom spoken to those who are under the Old Covenant, explaining to them, this is going to be a time where you take your faith seriously. This is going to be a time where you follow the Lord with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. And I see where they're getting that, because when Israel was following the Lord, Scripture says they were diligent about keeping the Sabbath. And one of the, one of the signs, one of the harbingers of Israel falling away is they stopped observing the Sabbath. So at the very least, verses 1 and 2, Jesus is calling them to dedicate themselves, consecrate themselves unto him. Uh, I think it's more than that. You know, disagree and we're still friends. We can have breakfast. Do not let, verse 3, do not let the son of the foreigner, the Gentile, who's joined himself to the Lord, speak, saying, the Lord has utterly separated me from his people, nor let the eunuch say, here I am, a dry tree. Verses 1 and 2 are directed to Israel. Hey, be sold out for Jesus. Worship the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and Sabbath keeping for them would be a token, would be an illustration of that. Verse 3 now is directed to the Gentiles and to the eunuchs. The foreigner is a Gentile and the eunuch is what it sounds like. Why is this significant? Deuteronomy 23, you don't have to turn there, but Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, the eunuch, the, someone who was emasculated, was specifically forbidden from assembling with the people and worshiping at the temple. Deuteronomy 23, verses 3, 4, 5, 6, said the same thing about the foreigner, specifically the Ammonite and, and the Moabite. You can't, you can't go to the temple. 
Even if you call yourself a follower of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, you can only go but so far. That's going to change in the kingdom we just read. The eunuch and the foreigner will be able to approach. In fact, anyone, I think, I think by extension, anyone who thinks themselves excluded, if they've accepted Jesus, if they found forgiveness in his blood under the new covenant, they're welcome to worship alongside Israel. For thus says the Lord, verse 4, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant, my new covenant, even to them I'll give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. This resonates, perhaps, for you and me with Revelation 2.17. That's the verse that tells us that you and I have a new name. When we're saved, God seals us with his Holy Spirit. God's Spirit comes to live in us. Lots of things happen at the moment of our salvation, and one of them is that God gives us a new name. And God says, yeah, to the eunuch, to the, to the Gentile, to those who have been for, far off, I'm going to give you a new name. Verse 4 and 5, words of, of, of encouragement, um, specifically for, for, for the eunuch, but verse 6, let's, let's be clear, it extends to the Gentile as well. Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and love the name of the Lord to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. Even then, I'll bring them to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's a change. Jesus, Jesus in his first coming, when he, the second time that he was tossing out, when he was cleansing the temple, the second time he was flipping over tables in Mark eleven seventeen. He quotes this verse, and he says, My father says that this house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. You've made it a den of robbers. At the time, Jesus was decrying the fact that they had set up to do business in the courtyard of the Gentiles. At the time, he was saying, look, the, the one place where Gentiles are allowed to go, as close as they're allowed to approach, you're not even letting them approach. That's contrary to the spirit of, 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 of the Father's heart but he was also foreshadowing, you know, there's one day where the Gentiles are going to be able to blow right past these outer courts and, and, and be able to go in and offer and sacrifice alongside the Jews. In fact, you want your mind blown tonight? Go back to Isaiah 66. Should have told you to keep a finger there. But face it, you're running out of fingers. Isaiah 66, go to verse... Uh, go to verse 18. We'll go quick. I know their works and their thoughts. It shall be that I'll gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. So this is second coming. This is kingdom. This is Gentiles coming to Israel to do what? Verse 20, they'll bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of the nations. Okay, it's still... Gentiles, to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord, as the children of Israel bring an offering and a clean vessel of the Lord. Verse 21, I will take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord. Gentiles, 
are not only going to get to pray, are not only going to get to sacrifice, some of them will be priests and Levites in the millennial kingdom. How does that work? I don't know. I just think it's cool. But it also makes sense. Because in John 10, Jesus says, I have other sheep not of this fold. That's us. And, and, and today, we rejoice that Jesus came for us. More than that, today we rejoice that we're the temple. Right? 1 Peter 2, Ephesians 2, we're the temple. We're the living stones being built up. But take what we say all of the time and reverse it. A lot of times we build our application by looking at the kingdom and saying, hey, what's true in the kingdom, what will be true in the kingdom one day can be true for us today. Reverse it. What's true for us today will be true in the kingdom. What's true for us today spiritually, spiritually we're the temple. Spiritually, we're the living stones being built up into the temple. But one day, what's true today spiritually in the kingdom will be true physically. And the Gentiles will be worshiping and serving and ministering alongside the Jews in the temple. And I think that's amazing. I think that's so elegant. And I think that's so in keeping with the character of God. Scripture, scripture has a lot more to say about Gentiles in the kingdom, and, and we'll pick up some, some, some threads here and there as we continue to go through these last, wow, 10 chapters is all we have left. And we'll also talk about our role. Because understand, when we talk about Gentiles in the kingdom, those are Gentiles have, who have yet to be saved. You and I are the church, and, and we're a different category at that point. We're returning with Jesus, but returning in glorified bodies. Whole different ballgame for us, and we'll talk about that too. Um, when we talk about Gentiles here, we're talking about the Gentile survivors of the tribulation. We don't go through the tribulation. We go around it. We go over it. But, but let, let, let's wrap up tonight, and, and let's wrap up by just, just going high. Let's go to 30,000 feet, and let's look down at what we've talked about tonight from a kingdom perspective. There, there are differences and delineations today. We talked about that on Sunday, right? Two categories of people, and we came at that from different angles. But it seems that in the kingdom, those cease to have meaning. We love to categorize people. Because if we can categorize people, if we can divide people, we can rank people, and we like that. You know, St. Patrick's Day is, is what, day after tomorrow or something like that. And, you know, people celebrated the arrival of my Irish ancestors to the U.S. My ancestors and, and, and a lot of the Irish in the U.S. came after the potato famine in, in Ireland in the 1850s. And especially in the North, the Italians, the African Americans were delighted to see the Irish because there was someone lower on the social, the social ladder than they were. You know, the, 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 the freed slaves in the, in the north and the Italians, ha <laughs> ha, okay, now everybody gets to pick on the Irish. We love to categorize people because then we can be better than someone. But, but as we look at the kingdom, as we look at the restored earth, the curse, not completely, but substantially reversed, and, 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 and God's plan for humanity finding expression. It's not perfect. There are still people with a sin nature, 
but it's much, much closer to the world that God intended than the world that we have now. One of the things that we see in that world, in that kingdom, the differences go away. We like to get all righteous about the, the differences that we ascribe. Well, well, God divided Jew and Gentile, so I've got a right to divide people. God loved Jacob and hated Esau, so I've got a right to divide people. I've got a friend who's, who's, who's in-laws, a friend who lives in Tennessee, and whose in-laws go to a church that teaches racism, and they teach that racism is biblical based on that kind of thinking. God divided them Jew and Gentile. God loved Jacob and hated Esau. Therefore, white's good, everybody else not so much. God called Abraham out of the Earl of the Chaldees, out of his father's house, and he said, okay, you're going to be a people set apart. You're going to be a people unto my name. God did that division. That's unquestionably true. Why? One reason. He was writing a love story. He was writing a love story. Every love story you've ever read or seen on, on, on the big screen, it's boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back. All that is is a reflection of the greatest love story ever. Think about the setup. Adam and Eve in an ideal environment blew it. God says, okay, maybe you've learned your lesson. Let's try again. All of humanity goes over to the dark side. Eight people God finds righteous enough to preserve. Noah and his family. Maybe now they've learned their lesson. Except the next big thing that happens, Tower of Babel. People are, are, are building a huge spire because they think that they can be like God. God says, okay, let's scatter them. Let's make them different peoples, different nations, and we'll try again. And I'm going to try again with one in particular, and I'm going to call it, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to bring it forth from Abraham. And gave him every advantage, every, every favor, every blessing possible. And they blew it. And God says, okay, but I'm going to get them back. I'm going to use the Gentiles to show them what they missed. I'm going to use the Gentiles to go after her. I'm going to use the Gentiles to win back my unfaithful wife. If we're going to put people in categories, we can't do it to hate. We can't do it to look down. We can't do it to feel superior. If we're going to put people in categories, it's got to be to write a love story like that. Otherwise, we're better off sticking with what Paul says. Neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We spent all Sunday saying there's two kinds of people. That was kind of the, 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 the structure, the trope that I used to organize the message. At the end of the day, there's one group of people. People made in God's image. People that Jesus died for. Father, thank you for loving us so much, for revealing your love, for bringing your love, for being love. Teach us to love like you. Teach us to seek you and wait upon you, to be being filled with your spirit that we might love in your name love 
in your character, love in your power, love following your example, love with your love. In your holy name, amen.